Greetings, the damned. Welcome to Pod Damn America, the uh, goth socialist podcast, yada, yada, yada. Uh, hi, this is Jake. Before we start the show today, I just want to address a couple things. Um, our equipment fucking keeps blowing up and uh, is haunted and um, is probably bugged by the government and all sorts of crazy shit's happening, right? So um, something happened in the middle of this episode where we lost the first half of the episode and then... Um, because everyone is doing stand-up and has spots and shit, we had sort of a time crunch, and we had to sort of, um, get our interview with Ted Alexandro done and out of the way so that we could then re-record the first half later. So it's gonna sound a little disjointed and wonky, that's just what happened there. Um, so the first half is just gonna be, like, regular podcast. The second half is an interview with this comedian. Ted Alexandro, who, if you're a fan of comedy, you'll probably recognize. You probably know who he is. Um, you might not think you know who he is and then see him or hear him and go, oh, shit, that guy, right? Um, <clears throat> he's a staple in stand-up comedy. He's been doing it for a long time. Someone uh, I've been a fan of for a long time and sort of recently discovered that we have some political interests that align um, as I've been living and doing stand-up and um, getting interested in activism, stuff like that, in New York the last five years. Uh, I saw this guy, you know, talk at, like, Black Lives Matter events and stuff like that, and um, he talks about Occupy Wall Street and things like that, and um, he's very involved in sort of activism on a grassroots level. Um, and then he's also just this comedian, so it's pretty cool. Uh, I'm really glad that we got to talk to him about his new album, which is called um, The Senior Class of Earth. It's great. You should check it out. It's sort of, uh, or it's an album. It's also a special. It's also, you know, just available everywhere. Um, that's how you got to do it these days, you know. You got to release on all platforms. Um, so you can check out his album, which, you know, we're obviously here to promote today, but also to talk to him about his experience in uh, politics and comedy. Um, you can check it out anywhere. Um so yeah, that's pretty much, uh, that's the premise of this week's shows. We're going to talk to Ted about uh, about all that stuff, and it's uh, it's pretty good. I think we got a really good interview in there. Um, and then also, um, the other half will just be regular old show like you're used to, right? Um, before I get right into the episode, I also just wanted to, to credit uh, on a public episode as these get these reach a lot more people, the mid-eye, the crazy chiptune music you're going to hear as like the interlude in between the two segments of podcast um, was done by a guy who listens to the show. His name's John Miranda, and uh, you can check out his music at John Miranda Music. You can hire him and have him make music for your thing. Uh, we're probably going to do some of that maybe for this show. Um, he made me this one for free. I really liked it. You know, we'll see uh, how this goes from here, but it's spooky Castlevania music. Pretty on brand, right? I think so. Um the other thing I wanted to, to get out of the way up top before we start is um, I had to go find this guy's music by going through my own DMs. So check this out. This is a this is a populist podcast. This podcast is for the people. I'm trying to uh, sort of sell directly to the um, thousands of insane people that follow me on Twitter, and uh, for that reason, my DMs are kind of open. Um, but Twitter's really hard to search, and also, you know. There's emails. I have multiple email accounts. There's DMs. I have multiple Twitter accounts. Um, there's like you can direct message us on SoundCloud on Patreon. There's a lot of 
shit that gets lost in the mix. Um, and I just wanted to give a heads up to uh, the many people who have sort of like pitched me ideas for episodes, journalists and just people who work in, in are involved in things on the ground and stuff like that. Um, please, if I, if I said like, Hey, I'm interested in this and uh, I haven't talked to you in months, hit me back up because I frankly am just having a hard time searching through my DMS and finding some of the stuff that we talked about. There were some ice people, not people in ice, people that organize anti ice stuff. Um, there was some stuff regarding prison stuff, some stuff regarding service industry, um, unions and shit like that. Um, all of you guys, uh, if you're listening still, if you still listen to the show, I didn't forget about you. Uh, the DMs are just a, a a fucking mess in terms of organizing your mail. Um, and you know, also life comes at you fast and all that shit. And we're all very busy, so uh, please, please hit me up if you're one of those people. I will definitely get back to you, and uh, we might be interested in doing one of those episodes that you guys pitched. Um, the other thing is, if you're the person that sent me that cool ass theme music that sounded like fucking Bauhaus somebody sent me an incredible like like rendition of a like a theme song for this podcast that sounds like goth music I can't find it send it to me again I'll absolutely put it up on a public episode and I'll credit you um it was like you know industrial fucking percussive you know, electronic drum stuff, and then like, Paul damn America, Paul damn America. It was badass. I just can't find it. Um, so yeah, resend it, and I'll put it on the show. Um, but yeah, um, that guy John Miranda, check out his music, and um, check out Ted's special, and obviously follow our stuff. And and um, if you're in Brooklyn, um, thank you for coming out to Yoko. Our, our my live stand-up sh- comedy show that I run with Ian Fidance and Claire O'Kane if you came to the show. If you didn't and you live anywhere near New York and you want to come see a live show, um, it's going to be a regular show. I think we're booked for the first or the, the second Tuesday of every month, but obviously I'll put all my stuff up on uh, Twitter and social media and stuff. But we're going to do a monthly show. I think it's second Tuesdays, and uh, we're going to get big, big headliners. We had a really good turnout with Chris Gethard and, um, yeah, I think we're just going to keep doing it. Like, the club's happy. All my comics are happy, you know, Hopefully the audience was uh, the food there's fucking banging, pretty cool place to hang out and drink and stuff. Smoking patio right up there upstairs on the roof. The fucking can't get that everywhere. Uh, pretty cool, right? So yeah, um, thanks for supporting the show and yeah, come hang out in real life at Yoko sometime. All right, that's it. positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America. No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God damn America. That's in the Bible for killing innocent people. God damn America for treating us citizens as less than human. God damn America. Here comes my boy George. Fuck him, love him. He's a badass. Look at him. He wants to fight me. Hello. George wants to fight me. George wants to fight me. 
That was um, some fucking MAGA guy trying to do world star hip hop shit to George Lopez in a fast food restaurant this week. Um, G-Lo. And the he great got George Lopez. Yeah, he got George. He, he got got by George Lopez. It's pretty fucking tight. Um, this is a pro George Lopez podcast. Um, welcome to Pod Damn America, the goth socialist pro George Lopez podcast for ghosts that want to know why you crying. Lopez brochialists. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, that was down in Texas, where we'll start the show this week. Uh, but first, I'll introduce everyone. I am Jake Flores. You know me. I've got with me Anders Lee. Hey, Anders Lee here. And uh, Raghav Mehta. Hey, how's Ra- it going? Good. <laughs> cool catchphrase, Raghav. <laughs> um, the three of us are here to intro the show. Um, uh, later on in the episode, we've got an interview with... Ted Alexandro of comedian fame. Um, he works at. He's a comedian who works at stand-up comedy. <laughs> yeah, if you friend him on uh, Facebook, it'll say comedian. All, all his comedy. Actual real one. <laughs> Ted Alexandro Ocasio Cortez. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh huh. Ted's probably the biggest uh, comic I think we've got yet, but we got some some big guys coming up. Uh, but I'm b- very excited about our interview with Ted because he just released a new comedy special that um, I think pretty um, in a pretty interesting new way approaches comedy like very subtle or approaches politics and comedy very subtly it's really cool he's kind of produced it diy and he talks about some uh some more left-leaning stuff on the record and to a clearly like comedy club audience and i think there's a lot of cool social implications there um and he's cool very hard to do yeah um, yeah, because you know, you don't know what the fuck those people are thinking, and they're mm-hmm. often unless you have, you're bashing George Lopez. With <laughs> the only thing that they can agree on. Yeah. Um, I say fuck, you say Lopez. <laughs> do that for an hour. No, fuck that. <laughs> uh, I love George Lopez, man. I'm a George Lopez apologist. People don't know that he's actually kind of a badass, like stand-up, because he had to do all those like shitty sitcoms and stuff. Yeah. But he's. Um, he kind of rules. Like he's he's not like he's kind of like a Cat Williams type, where you're like not like oh this guy's a genius joke writer. He's just very fun to watch. Charismatic, yeah. Um, I would describe him as uh, I was thinking about this recently because I've um, I've been thinking about Eminem a lot. But uh, Eminem. <laughs> well, Eminem is kind of funny because like he is technically a lyrically talented rapper, but we can all kind of agree that he sucks, right? No, now he's not a lyrically talented. He's a technically talented rapper sure. who doesn't have anything to say and is not funny about anything. Well, that's what I mean though. I mean, the technical skill, like if a lot of people are like a lot of people argue well he's good. I mean, he's technically good and that, you know, which is hip, not hip hop is yeah. just the, it, technically the best rapper should be the person who's technically good at it. But there's like multiple things going on with like hip hop and like you know, especially like cause I'm from Houston, right? And Houston rap. My friend Pat explained this on a podcast a while back, and it blew my mind because I'd never really been able to put it into words. But he was like, Houston rap's like real dumb. Like if you listen to like Bun B and shit like that, yeah. it's just all like UGK. Yeah, like uh, you know, <laughs> man, I'm for real. You're all up in my grill. Like real dumb, three words at a time, A A B B shit, and. But he, it's populist hip hop. It's made so that everyone at a party can bust out doing it, and it's real fun, right? So like Eminem is, uh, you know, like a John Mulaney to like Bun B <laughs> being like George Lopez, like yeah, yeah, they're like uh, they're called like chopper rappers who, who can just rap very fast. Yeah, like, yeah, like Twista, Twista yeah, shit. Yeah, like yeah, Twista, but it's like 
I don't want to listen to it. It's like when uh, it's you guys ever listen to Dream Theater when you're younger, <laughs> yeah. and everyone would just be like, "But no. the solos are so good." It's like I don't fucking care. Like yeah. uh, that's how I feel about a lot of stand up. I don't like, know what an arpeggio is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't know what it's all these like, scales oh, are. This dude's just masturbating into my ear. I don't give a fuck. But um, <laughs> the best uh, best critique I ever heard of like modern Eminem was like uh, Eminem makes rapping sound hard when a good MC does the opposite. Oh, I like yeah, that. Yeah, it's great. I just um, remember being disappointed when he can't, he was because I remember reading some article when he was in hiding. He was kind of reclusive and he was just eating Taco Bell all the time. He's eating Taco Bell on pills and shit. Yeah, he, like overdosed <laughs> on Christmas and like it went to rehab. Oh, like, the day oh, after on Christmas. the day of, I thought you were like that's like some new drug. He overdosed <laughs> on Christmas <laughs> doing Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted a fat Eminem. I thought I was gonna get a fat Eminem, but he shows up. Oh, he, he was. There's like this old Rolling Stone story that's. Very I remember sad. seeing that, but yeah. he didn't bust that. He lost all the weight before. There's this quote. Forward. I want Eminem to look like the yellow Eminem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to be round and yellow. He had like a, a turning point moment where he was in a Denny's or something, and some kids were like, "Yo, that's Eminem," and the one kid was like, "No, Eminem ain't fat." <laughs> He's like, oh, I got to get my life together. Not all the other oh. shit that he was doing. That's yeah. what made him turn it around. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, pro George Lopez podcast and um, and that show Ted. was actually I thought it was for like a sitcom. I thought it was pretty good. Uh, I so mean, genre. <laughs> I to me, okay. So to me, he's kind of a sleeper in the way that like Bob Saget is like on all these shitty sitcoms, yeah. and you go, oh my god, in real life he he's curses fucking, and he's filthy. Yeah. Except with Bob Saget, the like the novelty of that fades away after about twenty minutes because his act isn't really that good. But with George, I think he's more fun to watch. Um, but maybe I don't know. I'm from Texas and I'm fucking Mexican and all this shit, and there might be other yeah. shit going on there. But um, anyways, anyways, before we get really, really deep into the stand-up comedy of George Lopez, uh, we should talk about politics a little bit, and then later uh, we will get to Ted and uh, his new album, which you should check out. Um, but in Texas, in Texas, as long as we're on the, the topic of Texas, Beto O'Rourke and fucking um, Ted Cruz, not to be confused with Ted Alexandro, a uh, different person. We didn't have Ted Cruz in the podcast, but Ted, Ted Cruz and Beto O'Rourke, um, debated last night and it's really fucking funny um, Beto obviously you know fucked him up I think um, although who knows what the fuck Cruz's audience heard when they watched this debate um, but there's there's a guy a good self owns in it like at one point Ted Cruz is uh, trying to I think explain how committed he is to politics but he just goes on a very long diatribe about how he missed all his uh, daughter's like soccer games and shit and just isn't a good father <laughs> and then <laughs> and then they just go alright that's the end of your time and he's clearly like wait <laughs> I was gonna get to the point which is that I'm a good dad um, they also talk about me too and civility and the civility what? portion yeah well those I guess these are two separate things but the civility one is really funny because they have to just be like Mr. Cruz, you were recently chased out of a restaurant. <laughs> um, and, you know, he has to respond to it, and he immediately gets really angry and goes off on a weird tirade to which the the moderator responds like, okay, so can you actually stay on topic? And he goes, you know, stop interrupting me. Like, while he's talking about civility, he fucking rules, dude. He's just a like a blob. He mm -hmm. fucking sucks. He's an angry monster. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't believe he has genitalia. Yeah, he's just I like made of fucking yeah. factory clay. Right. I think it's really funny that he's a Latino guy that wants to be white and Beto's the reverse <laughs> and they're <laughs> yeah. grappling for power of Texas. Uh-huh. <laughs> um and both of them are 
Only one of them will get drenched, bapti- baptized in oil. <laughs> <laughs> oil and Big Red, baby, and Topo Chico. They um, should both take DNA. That should have been the debate, them taking <laughs> DNA tests. <laughs> Are you the Zodiac killer? <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, yeah. that's how they caught the fucking Golden State killer. <laughs> it was when Ted Cruz did 23 in me and found out he's not a human. <laughs> um, it's funny because, I mean, I, you, I, I actually think you might – if Ted Cruz got his twenty three and me done, he might find out that he's ethnically like just Spanish or something because Cub- like Cubans are like ninety percent ethnically like they just wiped out the indigenous people. Yeah. Um it's fucking crazy. But um, you know, you shouldn't do that if you're a politician though. You shouldn't you probably shouldn't release your DNA results <laughs> to make some sort of political point. Probably not. Um I don't know. I d- I get what you like, just getting it out of the way because Trump's going to come at her for it. But yeah. like, Trump doesn't care, and he said that months ago, and then he said that again when the DNA results came out. Right, but it's her, his kind of tag. It yeah, it's his away, hook. It takes yeah. away poke. He can't say Pocahontas anymore. Yeah, exactly. Well, he can. Yeah. Oh yeah, because she self-owned herself right, yeah, by probably still proving she's he, like yeah. not really <laughs> Native American. Well, it's like yeah, he can say whatever the fuck he wants, and he will. Be- and some of these dipshits will just not realize that he's a dog that doesn't feel shame. Yeah. Uh, but I, I don't know. It, it was a bad move, but I, I get what, what she was thinking. Yeah. I feel like your uh, people's uh, ethnicities that can, is more are more personal than sometimes we let on. Like everybody has their own experience with their heritage and shit and, the way you choose to I think she should have had like a gender reveal party style thing where there's a yeah. big balloon that she pops just <laughs> <laughs> says point oh one percent yeah I mean I guess she made the distinction between like ancestry and tribal identity and she stressed that but it's like God ah, you didn't do that when you were like applying to Harvard or whatever yeah, yeah. well as someone of like you know ambiguous and mixed race I can tell you from personal experience that they that you you shouldn't do this. You shouldn't like, you know, try to split hairs over it because what 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 happens racially is whatever the worst thing at any given time is gets used against you. So yeah. for someone like Elizabeth Warren, like she's going to get called white, well, A, because she is, but also because that's the whitest thing you can possibly do is be trying to insist that you're not. Right. And that's what's kind of funny about her, you know? Yeah. Um, it also, and I'm I'm being trying to be careful to not pile on her too much because, like, I secretly hope she doesn't run and Bernie does. But uh, I, not so secret. Not so secret. <laughs> I feel I feel the opposite. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, after this, we'll see. But yeah, yeah. I I feel like there's so much. The, a, a lot of the discourse around race kind of disturbs me right now because it's like the point should be like it's not real. You know the the social ramifications unfortunately are for now but race is not it's it's, an it's a social construct yeah. but th- the thing is people's experiences are defined exactly by it. and yeah, it's yeah. not it's like uh th- their experiences are predicated white supremacy is predicated on those la- on those labels so people right. are unfortunately operate under that yeah and we live in that state trying to overly exert your um your sort of y- y- your identity as one of not in power and as one of impressed or uh, as one of oppressed rather is not a good look i think yeah right you know um and people really do that with the native american thing because there's so much shit in early u.s history where someone yeah. 
raped a Native American. Yeah, at right. some point. And it's and a then, tradition of conquest that she's giving it and to. It's, yeah. it's weird because someone in her position should run on um, making things better for Na- Native Americans or, or indigenous people in this continent. But like now if she does, it's going to be really awkward. You know, like it would be awesome if a presidential candidate like launched their campaign from a reservation, you know, and talked about those issues. But yeah, now it might be weird. Yeah, I don't know. The next presidential campaign is going to be fucking horrible. I think we can all agree on. The next um, race? 20, oh, yeah. It's 2020. Awful, yeah. It's oh, you mean just, when Bernie wins? I don't know. <laughs> um, I mean, let's. I'll try to be optimistic about uh, that and anything. Um, but um, moving on a little bit, I think we should talk about the uh, the, rec- the 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 events of this last weekend, in which a bunch of Proud Boys jumped uh, some people in the street after a um, after an event at the like Repub- some Republican fucking Moose Lodge thing or some shit. Um, a bunch of Proud Boys, led by Gavin McGinnis holding a fucking katana sword, just decided to walk the streets Danzig style and go yell, um, you know, epithets at people and beat up some people that they, I guess, were calling Antifa or something. Um, Gavin McGinnis is a fucking moron, and I don't know if I've told this story on the show before, but I, I was in a scene in a movie with him one time where I had to what? introduce him. Um, this the movie Vice movie no the, the yeah. <laughs> actually so the movie I was in was called Long Night Short Mornings and the, the scene got cut out but there's this it's like a drama about some fucking couple in New York you know whatever um, <laughs> but the, the couple that it centers on go to a comedy club and they watch a comedian the comedian is is Gavin McGinnis and he does basically Pauly Shore style material about having a threesome it's fucking insane that he's like leading a a a neo-fascist movement because he's just this shitty comedian and um he he does this he's dustin diamond dude yeah (laughs) he does this set that i have to watch 10 times because we record it um but i remember that he told me when i introduced him he was really specific that i call him gavin mckinnis mckinnis and not mcginnis because i guess people call him mcginnis so um if you have to interact with him um this you know probably won't get him to change his ways or really have any meaningful political effect but it will bother him and make him uncomfortable (laughs) call him gavin mcginnis with a g uh, G, because he apparently hates it um (laughs) also at this uh event it was a republican club event uh which had included him reenacting the 1960 assassination of japanese socialist leader and israel uh fucking that up asanuma by a sword wielding 17 year old far-right nationalist oh that's why he had the sword yeah he was doing um like okay weird cosplay shit with yeah it. man the worst thing about these fucking proud boy guys is that they're all they suck and they're nazis and they're also fucking nerds like they they're yeah. who gives a shit about this obscure historical event you know right well but that's their whole thing is is masking fascism under the guise of anti-communism and they're not the first that this is a long right. tradition with with the far right is you know the rock against communism was skinheads the oi people in the 80s like uh and today i remember going to a mayday rally a couple years ago and there were these these fucking 
alt-right kids with their stupid Kekistan flag, and they were just all they uh, they would they were just talking about communism, Stalinism, and like they don't they don't they're not going to tell you what they actually believe. It's just this oppositional thing that they try to use to cloak. Yeah, well, it also makes sense because the people that they worship are capitalists, yeah. and capital you know fascism is capitalism in decay. Or at least that's right. a you know, a model of understanding it. Um, I saw like a political cartoon a while back that I thought was kind of poignant. And it was that, um, it was fascism is the, this like iron ring that you put on this barrel and the wooden barrel is capitalism, right? Mm. That's how you hold it together while it's fucking rotting. Um, and you know, I don't know, we could talk all day about that or whatever, but, um, but I mean, those guys are in, in their, from their own perspective, you know, big free market libertarian dorks that's why libertarian that's why the libertarian party is like a gateway to that fascist yeah. bullshit um God, so- I, I remember uh, watching get off my lawn which i guess is gavin mcginnis's new mcginnis's new show uh, <laughs> nice. but he had this guy on who i don't know who the guy was some like socialist blogger or something and mm. uh gavin mcginnis was like uh the majority of billionaires are self-made and the guy was like, "What? Where? Where'd you read that?" And Gavin McGinnis was just like, I, "I, I've looked into it." He was like, "Can you show me the?" He was like, "I said I've looked into it," but his entire crux of his argument relies on this fact that he just pulled out of his ass that uh, if you're a successful person, if you're rich and wealthy, it's because it's purely because of your own uh, grit and. Uh, oh, so who gives a fuck? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Even if they're self-made, they probably killed people. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, you did that all by yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, the, the, but when he's confronted with like, okay, well, most of this wealth that you're lauding in in the United States is uh, legacy; it's inherited. Yeah. Like people don't didn't work for that. Yeah, escape the estate yeah. tax. Right. Yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, well, he also has a lot of money because of um, starring in the Earthworm Jim uh, video game franchise in the early 90s. I don't know if you saw this. Yo, Kath yeah. Barbadoro tweeted that, by the way. I just what? saw her joke. She, she she found a picture of him without his fucking beard and mustache <laughs> where he's, like, looking down at a cell phone, and he has five fucking chins. It's so gross. <laughs> and he's not even fat. Yeah, he's not fat, and he has five like, chins, yeah. so he looks like Earthworm Jim. <laughs> he has, like, this weird long head, uh, which just speaks so much to like the masculinity shit that you know the proud boys are so centered on like he's clearly a guy who doesn't have a fucking chin and is insecure about it and fucking weird you know I, this is a, maybe this is problematic but we should just start referring to him, to them as the pride boys and Pro- see oh. that infuriates oh them. I like that yeah oh are there you a go. pride boy <laughs> like, no I'm not fucking I'm here for the pride event you <laughs> 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 just show up in like leather and shit <laughs> it's about masculinity and enjoying other men <laughs> yeah, I heard there was a Pride Boy parade. <laughs> oh man, that's fucking good. You have like, yeah, you're like a cowboy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that fucking rules. Uh, Akhmadinejad's on Twitter. You hear about this? <laughs> yeah, I saw that he got like, um, you know, Grandpa's first AOL account or whatever <laughs> this week. Um, it's really funny. He tweeted back and forth with Virgil Texas. It's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. Does he? Th- yeah, I bet he just thinks that's. An America, a standard American name, like Virgil, <laughs> Texas. Yeah, John Cowboy Hat. He thinks it's you know uh, one of the gay Americans that don't exist in Iran or whatever <laughs> the crazy quote he had was. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah I don't know what this is about. I guess it's like to show that. Oh, I Iran am talking to American homosexual Virgil, Texas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, apparently the Iranian bourgeoisie is like very secular. Like their children study at elite universities around the world, and they can wear whatever they want and like smoke pot and drink and stuff. But just the the rest of the country is has the oh. imposing on them. Oh, I know. That's a lot of them self-identify as uh, Persians to make right. that specific uh, difference. Yeah, known like uh, to differentiate themselves from what politically a lot of people see as Iranians. As a, oh uh, yeah yeah yeah. <coughs> yeah I mean I uh, not an authority on the ethnic shit up there. Uh, but my theory, this is why I think Ahmadinejad is on Twitter. He wants to be a hashtag resistance hero, <laughs> which is not hard. Yeah. All he has to do is say that he thought the Iran deal was great and he thinks Trump is a buffoon and he misses Obama and he's going to get a speaking tour. He wants a speaking tour going to fucking Wes- he wants to go to Wesley and he wants to hit Berkeley. He wants to hit all these places just like the Clintons are. Yeah. Go off, King. <laughs> go off, Ahmed. Cool clock, Ahmed. Uh, <laughs> go off, Crad. Mahmoud, sorry. Crad. Um, <laughs> that's... um. Yeah, I mean, I that would sound crazy if I had not read his first day of Twitter, which is very much <laughs> an old ass boomer somehow. Yeah, <laughs> even from uh, all the way in Iran, he's still sh- th- tweets like a boomer, right? And he probably, I mean, I guess he just misses the attention of being like all these people. I guess that's probably why the Clintons are doing this fucking thing. They don't need the money. Like they just miss being in the spotlight. They don't know how to function. Unless the the world is watching them, that is got to be the underlying motivation behind so many of these weird stories this week. It's just like, you, like if you're a celebrity, you just you, you every once in a while to have to going. be yeah. like, hey, I still exist. Right. I mean, it's the reason for the president of the United States being the president. Yeah. You know, he just kept. He just had to keep going. Well, He's addicted to fame. Speaking of washed up celebrities and of um, Iran, uh, I listened to the fucking batshit insane Roseanne oh. Joe Rogan interview this week. Um, it's fucking great. Uh, if anyone. Uh, hasn't heard it she um it, i mean it's it's insane it's like listening to a fucking lunatic and a moron like um <laughs> i'm not i mean uh, i feel like maybe i shouldn't bash rogan that much but he also clearly forgot who i am at this point and isn't gonna have <laughs> me on the show so like um you know i don't want to joke on him too much but who gives a shit well, like- you know I sh- actually i won't even joke on him too much regarding this interview though because he clearly tried to mediate and help her repair her image by having her come on and talk about her mental health and talk about what she actually meant and what was a joke and differentiate that from her political beliefs and she could have probably done that pretty well and then taken a bow and left and lived out the rest of her life in in somewhat level of respect but instead she took that opportunity to show to 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 make it clear to um to to clarify that she was like no I'm not racist I think Iran shouldn't like exist like she she <laughs> she's she made sure that uh to to clarify that the joke that she got fired for where she um she made this joke about um this woman you know looking like an ape or whatever she was like I didn't know she was black so I didn't I didn't mean to make an ape joke at a black person you know um and I actually kind of believe her on that but then when she explained what she was saying uh, in the joke in comparing this woman to the planet of the apes regarding her politics re- in you know re- regarding the Iran deal she was saying like 
no, I'm not. I'm not. Hate, I'm not racist against black people. I hate Iran, and you know, Iran funds <laughs> terrorism, and we should be, you know, waging war against Iran and all this shit. And so she basically her. Her argument was, I'm not racist, I'm xenophobic and also yeah. racist against this like other group or whatever. Wait, so Planet of the Apes because... I, she tried to explain it on the podcast. Yeah. I couldn't really figure it out. It had something to do with like government there or something. Okay. But uh, but her point was essentially um, you know, that, that everyone attacked me over this joke, but they didn't understand what I was actually saying. And I thought it was really interesting because, you know... Like, I got into this big fight with James Inman, that fucking weird-ass comic, about how he's like, you think, you know, Roseanne's racist, and you're calling me racist, and it's like, I'm not really calling these people racist over their jokes. I don't, I think Roseanne's funny when she just makes jokes. Like, when she did that photo shoot where she was, like, um, she was pulling gingerbread, um, gingerbread children out of the oven, and she's got a (laughs) Hitler mustache, like... I'm not the type of person that would be like, Roseanne, you need to apologize for this. I'm like, I get it. It's a Holocaust joke. Holocaust jokes can be funny, you know? But if you actually read her Twitter feed, the things that aren't jokes, that are just like hashtag MAGA, those are fucking racist. Like, that's the racist shit that she should be indicted for, and that's probably the reason I don't think she should have a TV show. And I get to to say that as, like, a member of the audience, you know? I get to say whether I think a thing is good or bad or whatever. Yeah, we can find other people who, yeah. (laughs) I mean, yeah, I I think, well, she made slightly more sense than Kanye West on that interview. I think both of them, in a few years, we're going to look back. You know how we have Lou Gehrig's disease, and we, like, it's named after this one famous guy who got it? Like, whatever they have is going to be a lot more widespread. And it is induced by social media and fame, I feel like. Because like, they were both pretty famous and well-known before uh, every inch second of your life was documented and tweeted and just everything. And, it, you know, probably it rotted their brains. It went, made them go bananas. Yeah. Uh, this is going to be a common thing. Yeah. People are going to just, celebrities are just going to keep going crazy. We're going to have to do the ice bucket challenge for children that tweet like Roseanne. Yeah. That's so sad. He's addicted to Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> people are, yeah, fundraisers for people are addicted to Twitter and shit. But something that was interesting about the interview, like you were saying, is that she, they went back to her past and her, she, uh, before she made it in comedy, she was uh, in an institution for mental illness. Yeah. Which is. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, if she had sort of, uh, if she had discuss that into some level like i mean i guess it's it's a complicated thing to ask a mentally ill person to own up for what they're right talking about when they talk about their own mental illness but there is an extent to which it really begs the question how much do we apologize for someone on the basis that they have mental illness if they are also telling you that I, in my sound mind, have these political beliefs and I support Donald Trump and yeah. you're a fucking famous person who supports this guy who's who wants to ethnically cleanse the country. Like, at what point do we go, oh, well, but she has mental illness, so, you know, like, that's not serious and that has no effect right. and no, even if she doesn't even know what the fuck she's saying, that still has so many the net effects on, like, the people who hear her shit and are influenced by it, you know? Yeah, and it's also kind of difficult for her to get empathy on that point and also have people look at her her, her other statements credibly. Like if she's saying, you should not listen to me, and then she's making a statement. You right, know, which, <laughs> like pick a fucking side, yeah. right? Uh, but yeah, I, I feel like 
most people would agree that mentally ill people should be treated with empathy, but they still need to be held to account when they do destructive things. Well, um, speaking of empathy for mentally ill people, let's interview a stand-up comedian. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, from the perspective of a bunch of other stand-up comedians. Um, we'll swing now to uh, our interview with the great Ted Alexandro about his new stand-up comedy album, The Senior Class of Earth. Check it out. It's great. From the beginning, uh, we definitely didn't fuck up 20 minutes of podcast um, and have to reverse engineer everything. Um, Didn't happen at all. Um, (laughs) Moving on to the second half of the episode, uh, we're going to talk to Ted Alexandro here about our... um, how, well, I guess we already introduced you in the... I'll figure it out. Fuck it. Yeah, uh, t- Ted. Tell that story again about you <laughs> on the come up. Come on. What was it? Um, I guess, yeah, I'll, I'll redo that story. Um, so, uh, yeah, to, to just completely uh, give away what's going on here at the podcast, uh, we bl- our, our fucking equipment's always blowing up and the government's always kicking at our doors and shit. <laughs> Shit's fucking up all over the place around here. Um, we just uh, lost a recording. Um, but as a, for, be, to m- make sure everyone gets to their various spots and comedy dealings on time, we're going to record our interview with Ted Alexandro here first, and uh, then we'll do the first half of the podcast second, and we'll smash it all together. And you won't even be able to tell until I tell you. Anyway, um, <laughs> so the... That thing you just will be edited out. Uh-huh. All of this will be edited out. Um, the point uh, of, or the, the highlight, the b- uh, main content of this week's episode, though, is that we have the great Ted Alexandro of comedy. The uh, headliner, if you will. Uh-huh. With, uh, with us promoting um, a new album called The Senior Class of Earth. A uh, new album slash special, I should say. Um, yep. I watched... Uh, some live clips of it. It was shot very well, I must say. Listen to the entire album on Spotify. Uh, it's available, I think, uh, pretty much everywhere you can listen to or watch comedy. Yep. Um, Ted, great to have you on the show. Thank I, you, um, I, I, We met a long time ago in Austin, where I'm from and where I started doing comedy. Um, I was saying on the uh, previous recording that I remember uh, a lot of your material being you know, very personal and a, being about being kind of a, an older single guy, and I thought it was really interesting. Uh, and I didn't realize that we were both fairly political people, although we are probably both more political now, given shit's going down. Yeah, that's fair to say. Yeah, for for a long time, I was probably more autobiographical and talking, like in my early 40s, I guess if there was an angle, it, you know, things kind of just work themselves out as you do stand up. But I think I was known as the guy who, like my the name of my last album was I Did It. And that was based on a joke where I talked about being 
42 years old, single, never married, no kids. I did it. I made it through the maze. This wasn't an OJ-themed <laughs> album. <laughs> you just well, read the OJ book <laughs> out loud? <laughs> we'll find out. Maybe there's a double meaning. <laughs> um, um, no, no. So, yeah, I, I haven't killed anyone. Um, so this was just... Uh, there was like kind of a progression, um, just getting more political and stuff. So that now I would say my stand-up is kind of like half and half, uh, you know, half on, on this album talking about at the time being engaged, and then the other half is more kind of social commentary, political stuff. Yeah, I thought it was a really, uh, really even split, but it also, you know, so. So, sometimes as a comic who is political you you really like i feel like there's just like two gears like sometimes you're just you know yelling about <laughs> society and then sometimes you're like aren't dogs weird and there's there's not really like a gradient between those two things but i thought your whole voice just sort of um you know uh galvanized all that stuff together into one sort of narrative um thanks man yeah i think that's really cool because um because we've it's uh, we're only now really able to do that in a weird way, I think, at least in, in terms of the left. Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, politics that we talk about on this show were recently rather fringe, and to do, you know, comedy from a far left perspective, um, you could do it, but you would be like a genre person. You would right. be like a Lee Camp or somebody like that. And yeah. I think that one thing that was really um, really telling in a positive way about where we've come as a society when I listen to a lot of material we're doing in regards to socialism and stuff like that is that it didn't come off that way it's like it's impressive and it's a good sign I think that you can do material about that sort of thing to like a comedy club audience now and it works and it comes off it means that the audience which is a random sampling of people who wandered into a fucking comedy club and got a niche Brooklyn, you know, the art paid protest or something like that, you know, (laughs) right. Um, understands what's going on and at least can deal with it well enough to understand it as a joke. Yeah. Well, I shot it at, uh, the, the comedy cellar, uh, the village underground, their, um, their second club. And yeah, so it was not at some, you know, hipster room or whatever you want to call it some alt room it was uh just a club so um but i do think that that's true what you say and probably just speaking personally i probably wasn't equipped to talk about these things like you know 10 years ago eight years ago but as time has gone on and being involved in occupy wall street in black lives matter just things that I kind of found myself participating in. Uh, it was just like a natural progression of like trying to talk about these things on stage, but in a way that's funny, you know, that's always the trick is like, I don't, I don't want to be dogmatic about it. I want to like, sure. Funny. You know, there are always, you always see young, like young, uh, like edgelord guy comics that get really into like Bill Hicks and Carlin and stuff like that right. and want to do that shit. Yes. And then, you know, when they try, to do that three months into comedy it's uh, a dog you know chasing a car not knowing what to do with it when he catches it sort of thing like it's they're they bit off more than they can chew and 
So, Did you see that even more so in Austin, just because of the well, food? because of Hicks, there were yeah. just a million Hicks hacks, you know. <laughs> yeah. Every and all their, you know, I mean, a that's a genre. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There were also like old guys that all were like, "Yo, I knew Hicks. Yeah, we hung out. You know, everybody had one story or whatever." <laughs> Did he know you? <laughs> um, well, but, yeah, it's also like mistaking indignation for for comedy too, right? Like, yeah, yeah. If they have a point of view, which they might may or may not. But if they do have indignation, they feel as though like they're equipped to do five minutes or ten minutes or whatever on a particular topic. But yeah, they probably lose the crowd pretty quick. Yeah, yeah. I just identify with uh, you know you describing um, having to gradually grow into being able to do the comedy about these sorts of politics because like you know in doing like this show and in doing stand up and stuff like that. You know, you do realize after a while that it's a gradual dialectic between like you and the art form kind of going back and forth and like you and the audience. Like there are times when we will all come up with an idea for like something on the show or something and realize, oh, I'm not equipped to do this. Right. But then I have to learn and do research and then become equipped to do it. And that slowly helps like me grow. And it also helps like you know ostensibly anyone listening to this get something out of it yeah. whereas they wouldn't get something out of it if we were just talking on our asses and you know yeah bit off way more than we can chew which well, uh, is going to happen by the way <laughs> keep listening to the show <laughs> no that's a good point because like if you're going to keep growing you have to do things that scare you and challenge you uh but it's weird because only you know and the crowd ultimately lets you know if you've bitten off more than you can chew like because if you're going to talk politics or something socio-political the target shrinks as far as you know like you said earlier if you're talking about dogs are weird or whatever or even a relationship a joke the target's much bigger uh but if you're talking about something political or you know uh, social commentary in some way the target shrinks because uh people have more you know kind of defenses around those things or more of a particular point of view around those things uh so that you have to hit a, a pretty specific target to make people laugh about it because you're not just like it's not a speech right it's yeah you're trying to make people laugh so it's um i ha yeah i had to learn i had to learn how to do those things and also it's taxing to talk about those things um it's easier to just like the material that I do about myself or about my my now wife uh some of that is like challenging um and I had to kind of you know if it's if it's something like something personal that you're sharing uh th that takes a little bit of effort and like that muscle has to develop but uh but with the political stuff yeah th th there is a process there's a learning curve of like almost convincing yourself to do it every night like right. cuz it's easier to just uh, uh, i don't know if i want to sell this tonight or uh, you know what i mean there, yeah. there there's an effort that has to be made so that you have to build that muscle up well something i found i liked about the special is i i feel like for most of uh, our lifetimes politics to most people most americans has been uh two white guys in suits arguing about taxes, <laughs> you know, but you make a distinction in the special between that and movements and how uh, politics is actually a, a much broader thing that uh, affects our lives, you know. Well, yeah, you know, and, and it's interesting you say that because I, I, I don't have much interest in politics, uh, the, the the description that you gave first. Uh, I, I really don't because people will say to me, like, oh, you're, you're pretty political, and I, I don't think of myself as political. Yeah, I, you're I, not I, wearing the T-shirt for 
disbanded it or the, yeah. yeah no i'm really not like ted's I, wearing a nasty woman t-shirt in here right now. <laughs> and, a, and a pink pussy hat that i that i knitted drum hat. <laughs> yes yeah. um but I, yeah but i do think of myself as like the movements are what uh really kind of engage me and excite me uh because i feel as though that's that's real kind of political action like people organizing yeah well it's weird you know almost like i almost don't like the word radical sometimes because it inherently makes um like you know quote unquote radical politics and quote unquote being radicalized like this thing we're describing of politics not being guys in suits and actually being things that affect your life materially and cause you to get involved on a really local level it makes those things sound fringe and what they actually are are like the things that affect your actual fucking life yeah that's why people get into politics right well, i think ra the radical refers to now it's radical because we're pushing for a, a world that we can't even conceive of yet yeah it's just my semantic no i get it i mean it's just it's the same thing with the we were just describing the word politics i mean yeah. it's, it, it, when you have one word that means different things yeah, to different yeah, yeah. people it kind of complicates things or whatever like comedian yeah sure and yeah I, I think too like almost this broader thing of like what the acceptance of the mainstream is you know it's almost like uh the mainstream in terms of like how, like networks and stuff like the old the old dinosaur version of how we got information is five years behind or ten years behind like where where people are I think yeah um so I think you know like a lot of the things that maybe were seen as fringe and maybe in in some sense if you're watching Anderson Cooper or whatever you know like might still seem fringe but like really aren't um in terms of like where people are pe where people are at yeah well that's why i think it's really interesting doing like stand up in this type of world because as a comedian you're you know doing such a really raw like litmus test every time you test jokes that you are both sort of testing and seeing like uh oh the the audience is now more quote unquote radical uh, or now they understand these ideas more but you're also perpetuating the ideas that cause them on some level to be you know more understanding of these politics um maybe maybe not i mean stand up is hard to gauge because it's like well how much voice do any of us have individually but um i don't know i mean i think it's hard to track because because uh yeah i talked about this a little bit on our last bonus episode about how why i think law and order doesn't make any sense anymore but the monoculture you're describing doesn't yeah. exist anymore like it's That's being right. splintered off into all these different things so actually podcasts like fucking Chapo Trap House or something like that or like all these other you know fringe leftist sort of things are having an effect and actually changing the way people think politically um and then you know the other evil side of that is like you know you look at all these Trump people and those people clearly aren't getting their information from the monoculture either they're getting it from their other you know right wing atomized fringe yeah. atomized uh you know avenues of information um, yeah, and like terms like uh, radical and even like elite, like Matt Matt Taibbi made this point in a recent Jacobin interview is like not only are like those terms weaponized and dictated by one's own perspective, but it, it's also just like imprecise. It, it doesn't do anyone any service. Where like uh, I don't know, 2010 Bernie Sanders was filibustering the Bush tax cuts renewal that Obama renewed. Mm -hmm. And everyone was calling him a radical, even the, his fans were at that time, too. Right. And that didn't service anybody. And But we keep giving into these dichotomies and stuff. 
Yeah. I don't know. It's interesting. I mean, they both uh, inform us, and then also we work against them, mm-hmm. um, which is a really just fucking obnoxious way to frame doing stand-up comedy. But, you know, guess what? You're listening <laughs> to Pod Damn America. Um, that's... Unfortunately, what we're all about over here, um, you know, and I think the point that you made too is interesting because this is such a recent phenomenon. Like when I started comedy in the early to mid '90s, uh, it was pre-internet, pre-social media. So, like when you took the stage, there was this subconscious monoculture, monoculture that informed everything you said, you know. But uh, that's been exploded in the span of my career, and like. You know what is it really? The last ten years that it's become so prevalent, like social media. There's no center really anymore. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you kind of like if you're still kind of speaking to that monoculture from the stage, it's um it's kind of antiquated. You know, for sure. Yeah. yeah. That's why so many comedians I watch now that are like still trying to get on TV. I just. I watch them and I'm like, who are you talking to up there? Right. It's an imagined person, you know? Yeah. Um, And I always, it always kind of makes me laugh because it's just, I think in five years that is going to become more and more absurd and people are going to realize like, oh, there's not one big broad audience anymore or whatever. Um, And yeah, not to, I mean, there's a lot of great late night sets, a lot of great comics do them, but I find myself a lot of times watching those late night sets and being like, this is, this they're so much better than this like five minutes that they've been allotted for this, you know, awkward sort of uh, audience, like huge audience that's been instructed to, to applause and laugh, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, like process it doesn't. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. It's canned. Yeah. It doesn't have the same uh, feeling as like live performance or a longer drawn out set. And well, a lot of times the very comedian that you're watching probably has a more interesting five minutes, but mm-hmm. they're not doing it on yeah, yeah that totally. Show, right? um, to speak to that point, you self-produced this new album, right? Yeah. Um, so, did, I mean, was that deliberate? Cause it sounds to me like you, you self-produce a lot of your own work, which is something that I'm really into. I'm really into DIY in terms of just artistic ethics. I yeah. I think that it helps keep a lot of the compromising factors off of what makes anything good. Right. Um, but then there's also another part of that sometimes where people, you know, it, it, it would be very easy to make an argument that goes, you know, hey, Jake, why are you? Why is everything you make DIY? Well, maybe it's because you can't get on TV and all this other stuff. You know, right, right. Maybe it's uh, maybe it's you know, I'm just self-aggrandizing, not being marketable or something. <laughs> um, but I do yeah. think that there's a value in it. Um, so For is sure. it was it was it a deliberate thing? Um, do, I mean, do you think about your work that way? I do, I do, and that's a relatively recent thing too. Of kind of. Because I had management uh, early on in my career, and I probably had like three or four different managers and agents, uh, but I haven't had any representation for the last, I guess, maybe four years. Uh, and there were other pockets throughout the career where I didn't have management for maybe three years here, two years there, just because of the fact that when you're when you do have representation, you know. Let me start by saying a lot of good things did happen by having representation, and it did give me entree to the larger business and, you know, television credits and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but the drawback is you kind of get into this uh, this factory where the next step is uh, very much dictated to you, like... Well, you've done this. Now you do this. Now you audition for a sitcom. Now you pitch your sitcom or whatever. And I just felt kind of constricted by the predetermined path of a lot of it. 
Um, and I also, it's not the way I, I like to live with like space, uh, like see what happens, you know, just like see what happens. And it kind of, I found it at least for me, you know, and maybe some of it was self-imposed, but I found it to be restrictive to kind of have these phone calls from people saying like, here's, you know, from people with financial interests, like for you working, uh, kind of dictating where you go next. So to answer your question about the special, yeah, I've done, th- this is my third special and all three of them I've done DIY self-produced. Cool. Uh, yeah. And, and you know, you said that you liked the look of it and I did too. I worked with Matthew Weiss who did my last special too. Uh, but we wanted something that captured kind of, uh, the unique feel of a club, made it intimate, made it interesting to look at so that it's not another cookie cutter theater comedy special where, like you said, everybody's hopped up and screaming from giving you a standing ovation when you come out of the gate or whatever. I just wanted, um, yeah, I wanted it to feel more organic to what I do, which is a club. Yeah, I really like, I don't like when comedians, uh, you know, take their act and then the final product is like a stadium or something. Like, I really think that like the best shows are in like 100 person rooms yeah yeah, and yeah. yeah. i really like right. albums that are recorded that way and like from an audio perspective but also like uh, your special reminded me a little bit of like uh um morgan murphy produced a special that was like shot in a really dark room like that uh-huh. um irish goodbye yeah 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 it was Great real special. cool i'll have to check that out yeah. um but it, it recreates the just feeling of being in a show that i think um it's taken away when you do these big, you know, comedy in the round, like Dane Cook sort of things or whatever. Um, well, I think also uh, what comes along with doing uh, a venue of that size is, again, talking to what we were saying about monoculture, just by virtue of there being, you know, 20,000 people rather than 200 people there's more of a presumption of like it restricts what you can talk about you know you're not going to get into too many yeah. political things or whatever because it's unwieldy to talk to 20,000 people about like something that has some nuance to it mm-hmm. but right. 200 people regardless of how they feel sitting there just d- basic decorum <laughs> is that you listen you don't yell out or you know what i mean so yeah, yeah. uh yeah the the intimacy and also kind of the i guess you're able to explore things that you can't in a stadium environment. Yeah, for sure. Um, I always think about, do you ever meet Eddie Gosling? You know that comic? Sure. Yeah, I love Eddie. We we did uh, Vegas together probably like 15 or 20 years ago and, and kind of just hit it off in a way that like, I don't know that we've worked together again, <laughs> but like we just love each other, you know? Yeah, he's great. Yeah. He's a really cool guy. I used to watch him when I was starting out in Austin and um, I just think about this a lot because, and it's no offense to him, it's just I saw him do stand-up like on uh, TV, um, you know, years ago. I think he had like a late night set or something and it was good, but it had, it. but I used to watch him in the room in like small comedy clubs right. and would be like, gut busting laughing like i had to like run out of the room and that just doesn't happen when you watch someone like on tv really no or like you know through all the abstraction or whatever um but man he's just i mean he's one of the only comics i've literally literally had to leave the room so funny and i'm a a comic i hate comedy i've heard every joke you know (laughs) that's right (laughs) yeah um but Yeah. yeah so that's cool um that you stylize your special that way um Another thing I wanted to ask you about, kind of related to, to, well, related to your act, not so much related to the, the special, is, um, so we, uh, my friend 
Luisa Diaz was on the show a while back, and she just happened to mention that you had um, worked in some regard uh, towards unionizing comics at some point in the New York scene, and that that's why we have like the spot-based standards that we have. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. On two different occasions, uh, I organized comics for a pay raise. The first time was like early 2000s. Uh, I drafted a petition that I then got a hundred and something comedians to sign just saying, you know, we, the undersigned request, um, a pay raise, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then the second time was with a, maybe three or four years later, uh, a, a, a group of comedians this time it was more kind of a, a real, you know, structure uh, organization. Uh, it was called the New York Comedians Coalition, and I did that with Russ Maneve and Tom Shalhoub and a bunch of other guys. Uh, and we, there was talk of unionizing at that point. Uh, the first time it was more just a petition, straight up talking about pay. Uh, but th- this time there was discussion about possibly linking on with AFTRA or SAG uh, and unionizing. But it just became like too much of an endeavor. Like the comedians could rally around more pay, but uh, it just became like too much work. And also, like I didn't want to be a full time like, you know, what a lot of the responsibility fell on like the three or four of us. Sure. Uh, so that I kind of, not that I put my work entirely on hold, but there was like a six month period where that was like a full time job. Yeah. You know? How did clubs initially react to this? I, I imagine like some of them would be flabbergasted by this level of organization. Yeah, yeah, I think they were. I think they were pretty shocked. And yeah. also, the first time I did it, I was maybe ten years in. Uh, so you know, like just like the uh, the status that a lot of the business responds to. Mm-hmm. Uh, like um, I had enough of it that they knew who I was, but maybe not enough that you know that they. They were like, what the hell, who, well, he's yeah. doing what, you know? Yeah. Uh, so th- there was a little bit of that. I wasn't like a, a real veteran who was a fixture at all these clubs. I was working a few of them regularly. Others I was kind of halfway in. Um, so there was, a, a, I think, a measure of like, who are you to, to the first time I did it. The second time was I was a few more years, probably closer to 15 years in and mm-hmm. uh, had a group of guys. So it was... Mm-hmm a little more kind of spread out, you know. I'm curious about, like, whether comedians are able to achieve that level of solidarity because, like, A, I mean, I like to make fun of comedians and I think a lot of, like, comedy <laughs> brings out the worst in a lot of people and, like, it just seems like there would be a lot of scabs, you know, because everyone's yeah. so hungry for spots and shit. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, it's there are a lot of unideological people out there who go, what do you mean? You know, I, that means a job for me, you know? Yeah. Um, well, but, we, we, I'm sorry go, to cut you off. Go ahead. But, but it just reminded me of, we had meetings at AFTRA. AFTRA was nice enough to lend us the space uh, when we did it the second time. And there was that very dynamic of like, it was kind of open meetings, you know? So everyone from, you know, Colin Quinn, Dave Attell would show up, Patrice O'Neill, to like open micers. Um, So we made a, a concerted effort to get everybody on board because we knew that that dynamic would exist where uh, younger comics would be like, oh, this is my chance to get in at the right, cellar or yeah. whatever. So we just said, like, you know, guys, uh, this is an opportunity for all of you, and it'll probably benefit you guys more because you're you're coming up into this system. Right. So, uh, yes, we luckily we got the pay raised uh, two different times. First from $50. Th- I'm talking about weekend pay. Uh-huh. From $50 to 65 
then it went up to 75 uh and then a couple clubs went to 85 and the seller now has taken that even to 100 125 uh in their different rooms so it i think what it basically did was introduce the conversation of like yeah this we live in new york like Mm -hmm. this should (laughs) this should you know shouldn't shouldn't be at 1980s levels um that's interesting to me because i've always i kind of wonder sometimes about uh how much even marxist theory can apply to just like art i think in specifically in america but you know just in society at large if we're talking big heady theoretical shit because like i came from austin which is um you know quote unquote live music capital of the world uh, so they advertise their city it's good for tourism and marketing and stuff and uh, so you know but i did stand up there and there was this um this thing that existed this health alliance for austin musicians uh, i used to do a joke about it. health alliance for austin musicians it's called ham um there should be one for comedians to be called hack etc um but the bit the bit i would do that the point i was trying to make was that um you know i i thought it was cool but i also thought that um it was a little bit limited and it's weird to have an artist union because you know, art is kind of bougie, and so you know you, what you do if you don't have universal health care, but you do have this musicians' health benefits thing. Is that if my mom has fucking diabetes and she needs medicine, I'm like, mom, you gotta pick up the fucking bass. You know, <laughs> we gotta get this band together to get this. It creates this weird like, if <laughs> right. you don't build socialism from the ground up, it's really odd. Like yeah. benefits for people to be artists. Like I think it's kind of weird, you know. And I always found that a lot of the pitfalls. Um, that we see in terms of like scabs and stuff like that would totally happen. Um, specifically for me, it was it was a weird couple of years when I was looking into that because um, we just couldn't get the musician people would tell us, "Oh, you're not a musician," and then we go to like mm-hmm. the performing arts art people and they'd say, "You're not a, a performing artist," and we go, well, "What the <laughs> fuck is stand up?" You know, <laughs> right? And uh, you know, we got n- nobody gave a shit about us or whatever. But uh, it just made me kind of think about it, and I I don't know whether I, where I stand and whether I think. Um, that it's even possible for unions and that sort of solidarity to function among like artists might might be wrong this is just a kind of weird take i have well i mean the what has become groups like equity and other like stage actors which very like the theater what for an equity show in the theater it's very highly regulated like very tight all these waivers and shit you have to get around uh very difficult to get in but that started during vaudeville um because it was like the bottom feeders. It was like the the scrappy performers who would do an act and they'd go around, they'd like go to St. Louis and they'd be driven to St. Louis from, you know, Maine or whatever and then they wouldn't have a way to get back home. They would just get screwed left and right and so they started banding together. But there were like more successful people on top who didn't like it. They were like, I had to do this. I had to come up and get, uh, get my riches this way and you should too. Um, but what it's kind of it seems like it's kind of become now is there is there are opportunities to perform um, in a not in like non-union official spaces and things. But if you want to actually make a living doing something like theater, you have to be in one of these bureaucratic unions, which has benefits to it. I'm not knocking them. But, oh, like, that is yeah, but it started yeah. with like, you know, scrappy people banding together and like making demands. Word. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, like, for me, uh, I it, it, I didn't engage with it like on a theoretical level. Um, at at that point in my life, I was kind of ignorant of of like that context. Uh, it was more just like in present in the conversations I was having with colleagues that we were annoyed that we were not making a living like mm-hmm. uh, enough to pay our, our rent, you know, and that these clubs were full and had lines around the block and were adding shows and you know, so it was more just like there was this constant 
grumbling in the ranks. So I just oh, uh, you came about it naturally. Yeah, yeah. You didn't read a bunch of marks or whatever. <laughs> that came later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So it was just like, oh wow, you know. And then I just kind of, the first time, took it upon myself to, and I reached out to veteran comics just so I would have a little bit of uh, credibility and cover. Uh, so like some older guys that were working the clubs, uh, Vic Henley, William Stevenson, they they kind of co-signed like. Uh, so that their names were like at the top of the petition with me. Um, so that kind of gave, you know, some credibility both to the clubs and to other comics in terms of getting involved. Um, so, yeah, like, uh, again, in terms of like a personal evolution, for me it was just like initially with organizing the comics, it was more, uh, you know, pu- putting putting into effect like the things that were on my mind and on everyone's mind. Uh, but then over the years, like engaging more politically and, and kind of seeing the connective tissue with all of that. Yeah, badass. Well, I'm sure the uh, entirety of the New York scene and comics everywhere appreciate that. Um, well, really fucking cool. Responding uh, to Jake's point, like I think uh, it's interesting because like there's so much talk about how comedy is like oversaturated now. And uh, like what would you you um, you made the point of how important it is to own your comedy um, like, what advice would you give to, like, comedians who maybe don't have a following, maybe don't have representation, but get offered, um, you know, a Netflix special and don't have a choice and are giving up, you know, some creative freedom or independence? Yeah, you know, I don't think that there's, like, a hard, fast answer that that goes across the board. I think, you know, part of life and certainly part of the business is kind of weighing like the pros and cons of what will this do for me you know it's always that the dirty word of exposure mm-hmm. uh you know so obviously like being on netflix or whatever or you know back when i was starting it was like the comedy sp- the comedy central half hour was like the, the holy grail um so you know there, there's always decisions to be made in terms of like all right they're writing you a check is that check sizable enough that it'll you know make a difference for you um and and you know as an artist too you always feel like, well, you know, this isn't my last half hour. This isn't my last hour. I'll, I'll keep writing stuff. So if this one has to be turned over to the the corporate behemoth in whatever way, so be it. Um, so yeah, I don't. I, my advice would be just kind of go with what your gut is. Like for me, more and more, my gut became like, I want to be involved. Also. Uh, the process you know like when you just sign a contract to do a a Netflix special or Comedy Central you're kind of turning over a lot of the decision making Mm -hmm. like because there's a lot of decisions to be made how you want it to look uh, where you want it to be shot all of that Um, so you know not everybody's inclined to to make all those decisions but if you are then you know I I would encourage anyone to kind of examine uh, like you know the decisions that you make um, because I, I feel I also feel like a career is built on each of those little micro decisions you know mm-hmm. and they kind of start to add up so if you get in the habit of turning things over for a check you know that's going to be that's probably going to be your your path you know and again I'm not I'm not condemning that as wholly uh, like wrong or whatever but but just to exa- whatever decision you're making examine it yeah well that's why we're DIY motherfuckers <laughs> um <laughs> Extremely DIY, uh, aka p- 
poor. But um, <laughs> yes. Anyway, said I. Uh, I we probably got to wrap up here just for uh, for time constraints. But thank you for uh, joining us, uh, passing down comedian wisdom that I know us young pups here at the the damned can always uh, could all use and. Um, uh, promote your album, man. Where can we find it? Where can my audience find Thank it? Thank you, guys. Um, my album is Senior Class of Earth. It's available at atcspecials.com. Uh, ATC is all things comedy. That's Bill Burr and Al Madrigal's company. Uh, comedian owned, I should say. Uh, atcspecials.com. You can find it there. Cool. Thanks. Plug something? Sure. Plug away. <laughs> plug away. <laughs> Uh, next week, if you're in New York, on Wednesday the 24th, I'm going to be doing my Edinburgh show Dummy at uh, Brooklyn Comedy Collective. It's at the Brick Theater in uh, Williamsburg off the Lorimer, Lorimer L Metropolitan G. I'll uh, post the link for it on uh, social media to get tickets. Uh, hope you can hope you can make it out. Damers. Cool. Uh, Rog Meta, follow me, ACLU official. Nice. Yeah, you know who I am. Follow my bullshit. Um, come to Yoko. The first Yoko was really good. Uh, we're going to probably be second Tuesday of the month at El Cortez, me, Infidance, and Claro Kane. Uh, running a monthly show there now, apparently, because it went pretty fucking good. Um, that's it. Thanks.